Hello there. I know this is a little late. Originally, I'd planned to publish one episode recounting the year of the pandemic from a collector's perspective. I didn't want 2020 to be maligned as a lost year or as a waste. While it was certainly a challenging one, I think many of us grew and became stronger during quarantine. And we not only learned a lot, but as a community, found creative and innovative ways to stay connected. And reflecting on a year like this takes some time and some thought. I wanted to capture some of the moments that resonated with me, as well as some of the events that are unique to our hobby and to our local groups. And I also hope to preserve this perspective on the podcast, because I didn't want to forget any of it. Thankfully, I'm joined by a number of dear friends who took the time out to share their thoughts about the past year, in answering two questions I posed to them. What was your favorite pickup from 2020, and what was your favorite collector-related moment? For the second question, our friends had to be creative with their answers. For most of us in a normal year, it's easy to rattle off a memory from one of the in-person meetups or conventions. But without those events, it was interesting to hear what registered as special for each collector. So they'll pop in from time to time within the episode as we travel through a look back at the second half of the year. And for those who shared some of these moments, I hope this episode is a reminder of the resilience and imagination we share as a community. And for friends newer to the hobby, I hope these stories and recaps inspire you to become part of our groups and collector events. So this is a look back on what it was like to be a Star Wars collector in the year of the quarantine. This is part two of a journey back through 2020 as we headed with hope toward 2021. This is a reminder of some of the wonderful and meaningful moments we experienced as Star Wars fans. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. July. I woke up on the first morning of the second half of the year to something I hadn't seen in three years, and sincerely did not think I would see again. In the midst of a breathless offering of incredibly rare items on the Facebook auction group Deal or No Deal, an Ahsoka First Shot prototype popped up for sale. I'm happy to say my phone was flooded with messages, and I quickly reached out to the seller to see if he wanted to work out a deal. It had taken me a few years to track down this particular first shot, and once I knew where it resided, it was another year and a half before it appeared on Deal or No Deal. The seller and I talked about it for a while. Neither of us knew where it would land as far as price. But it's funny. In hindsight, we both expected it to sell for around $750. 
After all, most Clone Wars prototypes that exchanged hands over the previous years sold for a tiny fraction of that valuation. But with Ahsoka's popularity, $750 made sense to both of us. We never discussed a price, but he was kind enough to check in with me during the auction. Within a short time, however, the bidding pushed the price of the first shot to well over $1,000. Then to $1,200. Then $1,500. Some vintage collectors chimed in during the day, completely in shock by the fervor around a newer character many largely ignored. I had discussions with each of the bidders. After all, we were collectors and friends who shared a similar focus. We discussed options and asked larger questions like, is this worth spending a premium on to get it? With modern first shots generally selling in the $50 to $300 range, does the current price of this Ahsoka piece make sense? None of us wanted to get caught up in a bidding war that would take a figure to an unjustified valuation. Nor did we want to set a new precedent for modern prototypes, Clone Wars figures, or Ahsoka collectibles. But whether we were on board, it was heading in that direction. In the heat of the midday, I stood in the shade of my garage on a Zoom chat with four other collectors, talking about the situation. I couldn't justify spending more than $1,000 on something similar to the ones I had purchased for $150 only a few years ago. I honestly felt I was not going to pursue it, and while I said that to my friends, I had no idea how the rest of the night was going to turn out. Later that evening, some other collectors joined the bidding war. A newer Ahsoka with money to burn, and someone who was bidding for a collector who didn't have a Facebook account. I talked to the seller as the price neared $2,000. He asked me if I wanted it, and told me he wanted it to go to a good home. I asked him if I could have a few minutes to decide, and called somebody I trusted, Elling Hogue. Fortunately, with the time difference between us, while it was almost midnight near me, it was earlier in the evening for Elling, and we discussed my options. Our friends often provide insight and a fresh perspective that we may not possess. And when it comes to things like major purchases in the collecting world, or important decisions in our daily lives, it's a blessing to be able to share our thoughts with those close to us, and to receive guidance from them through their wisdom. And it's nice to know that life affords us the ability to both help and be helped along the way. It was in our conversation that Elling helped me to see the cause of my frustration. It wasn't the price that was really the issue. It was that the first shot was not the one that I really wanted. The seller had another, in a different color, and when it came down to it, that was the piece I had always wanted. Elling kindly suggested I contact the seller again and see if he would be willing to part with the other one. So the seller and I spoke about it, and I told him how I felt. He went ahead and accepted the highest offer on the one listed on Deal or No Deal, ending what had been one of the most momentous auctions of the year on the group that was currently at the center of the collecting world. He mentioned that the other Ahsoka first shot was likely going to another friend and collector, but that he would speak with him and would see if he would let me have it. He then told me he would let me know in the morning. I prayed that night that at the least I would have an opportunity at it. I went to bed not knowing who the other person was and had no way of knowing how the situation would turn out. I was so intent on making the right decision that I hadn't been doing what I normally do, which is to bring it to God. That's not for everyone, but in my life, it has been one of the most important things. 
and realizing it was no longer in my hands, but in the Lord's, I finally fell asleep. The next morning, I spoke to Anthony Pagano, who you probably know from this podcast, who offered to reach out to the seller to put in a good word for me. None of what I'm saying is to break the trust of anyone mentioned in this story, but to demonstrate the kindness of friends. Anthony offered to do that because he cared, and as a friend, he wanted to help however he could. And I gladly would have done the same, and I know many of us in a similar situation would have done what they thought they could do to help a friend too. What I didn't know was that this potential recipient of the other Ahsoka prototype was a dear friend of mine. He had picked up a true grail of his own shortly before this, and later told me that as he was lying in bed that night, he thought about the joy he had experienced from receiving that grail, and that he had wanted me to be able to experience that same joy. I remember sitting at my computer that morning, waiting for a message from the seller, and thanking God that it was not my decision, but his. The seller let me know that the original recipient wanted me to have it, and that it was mine for a previously agreed-upon price. My mission for the second half of 2020 was to pay forward the kindness shown to me during those 24 hours in July. What occurred will never be lost on me, and will be something I will always carry with me because it genuinely touched me. And while being able to add that Ahsoka first shot to my collection had been a years-long dream of mine, this piece now means more to me than I could have ever imagined. Connected to it will always be the conversations from that day with friends and collectors, the late-night wisdom of Elling, the support and care of Anthony, the unstoppable heart of the original recipient, and a friendship made with the seller. And in another step in the journey that is this crazy wild life we walk, it is another moment that points toward the love my God showed me. Meeting me at eye level and using the things I'm passionate about, these silly pieces of plastic, to speak to me. And here's the kicker. A week earlier, I had sold a sealed vintage B-Wing to another collector. The price was the exact amount to the dollar that I had paid for the Ahsoka prototype. But the best part? The price I had originally paid for the B-Wing was $750, exactly what the seller and I thought the Ahsoka would sell for, and the amount I had originally wanted to pay for it. Ahsoka prototypes weren't the only hot items during the summer. In July, I published two episodes that centered around the market trends and soaring prices in the Star Wars collectibles market. Like most people, I expected the quarantine to decimate interest in collecting for a while. After all, if people were focused on getting things like food and hand sanitizer, that left very little room to focus on frivolous things like action figures and prototypes. But I was completely wrong. For many, collecting was a much-needed distraction. It became a bridge back to normalcy, something into which we could focus our time and our effort, like a little escape pod that would propel us away from a dire situation, aiming us towards somewhere else for a little while. And there were many other factors that added to the buying and selling of toys. For sellers, it was a way to thin down their collections or to make some extra money in the midst of layoffs and furloughs. 
For buyers, being home gave each person a chance to assess their collection and to hunt for pieces they felt were missing from their display. And with vacations and toy trips canceled, coupled with tax returns and stimulus checks, collectors put that money toward new additions. So the first podcast episode looked at how the quarantine jump-started the Star Wars collectibles market. The second episode was one of the more popular ones of the year and focused on the trends within the loose figure market. Ryan, who goes by Humble Hoarder on eBay, is a dear friend and toy dealer and has focused on buying and selling Kenner's Star Wars figures for years. So he kindly shared his insight in a conversation that covered the entire Kenner line, from the original 12 figures to the final ones released in the 1985 Droids and Ewoks series. It's been a wild ride for Star Wars collectibles during the pandemic, and six months later, prices have continued to rise. To give you an idea, a carded Power of the Force Han and Carbonite carded figure, graded at an 85, just sold for $1,500. And a loose Han with the same grade sold for $450. I would give you a few more examples, but I think it's better we save it for a future episode, when the humble hoarder strikes back. Hello, my name is Jim Jones. I'm a vintage bootlegger knockoff collector. Although this year has yielded some fine additions, I have to say my favorite piece is non-figure related. It's a knockoff Space Wars gym bag. When I first saw this piece, I reached out to two predominant people in the hobby, both of which have never seen nor heard of it. After acquiring it, I reached out to Ron Salvatore, who was more than happy to add it to the Star Wars collector's archives. That alone was an honor. To own a piece that was one of a kind and now archived for all collectors to see, that was definitely a special moment for me. My personal favorite collecting moment came when a rare Polish bootleg came up for sale. It was a Polish bootleg poker cape stormtrooper. Although very rare and desirable, a few friends personally reached out to make sure I was able to add it to my collection. It was one of those pieces I'm sure they would have loved to own themselves. This fine group of gents showed an unselfish act of kindness to help make sure a bootleg stormtrooper collector such as myself would be able to own such a fine piece, one of which does not come up very often. In August, the intensity of the year finally caught up with me, and I was starting to burn out. On top of everything, a lot of my friends, co-workers, and family members were going through some rough times. I was trying to continue moving at the pace I had been for the past year, and I just began to buckle physically and mentally from the weight of it all. Life was still wonderful, though. The quarantine made me fall in love with baseball in the form of my two nephews' Little League games. My family and I would drive to a nearby baseball field, dragging camping chairs with us, and would perch somewhere in an open area along the fence, and for a few hours almost nightly, we'd cheer on Carter and Cameron and some of the other boys as they fought their way through each inning toward a championship. Those baseball games were the quintessential American experience, and it was easy to forget about the pandemic for a short time. 
There was a sense of unity among the attendees in a beautiful way. And although the boys played in seven and nine-year-old leagues, the teams consisted of really good players, and the games were intense. I'll never forget being with my family and watching the games as the sky would turn pink and orange as the sun traded places with the moon. Or watching as lightning in the distance would threaten a close game that approached the later innings. Or seven-year-old Cameron getting his first big hit and scampering to first base as the crowd and some of the players shouted, It's Cam time! Or nine-year-old Carter catching my attention while playing third and contentedly waving at me as I beamed with all of the joy of a proud uncle. As we headed toward the playoffs, one game carried out as long as it could, and we and the players shook off the drops of rain that seemed to come more frequently with each minute. Finally, the storm clouds split in two overhead, and a torrential rain chased us all toward the concession stands that offered protection by way of a large awning. That night was one of the most memorable for me, because I remember looking around at a mix of wet and dry people laughing and having fun and just spending time together. We all stayed far enough apart to continue our social distancing, but it didn't feel like we were apart at all. It was at one of these Little League games that an idea for an episode came to me. My friends had all been struggling in some way, and while I felt unable to help them at times, I thought you and they could use something positive, something hopeful. And one of the most positive and hopeful people I know is a friend named Zach Curtis. Zach is an Ohio-based Superman collector, dentist, and toy dealer, and his story, and really his testimony, is forever wrapped in these amazing toy and collectible finds. So I called him in the middle of one of Carter's Little League games to see if he wanted to share his story of how he became a collector and how he wound up with amazing pieces like a prototype double-telescoping Darth Vader or an epic Elvis find or even a collection that took a few truckloads to get home and has netted him $75,000 so far. His episode is number 27 and is titled, A Lifetime of Miraculous Finds, A Conversation with Zach Curtis. If you need a lift in your life, hearing Zach talk about collecting and hunting will certainly help. Zach's story is one of joy, of hope, of trust in the Lord, and of blessings in places we often don't expect to be blessed. There were times during the year in which our minds were beginning to fray, and to me, every little bit of hope we could put into the world seemed like a good way to combat that. I'm pretty sure that won't be the last time you hear Zach on Star Wars Prototypes in Production, either. Hi, this is Narayan Nike from Atlanta, Georgia. My favorite pickup of the year was a Darth Vader, sealed Darth Vader case with the special offer bounty hunter's sleeve and the accompanying baggies that it would have come inside of it, which would be the Empire Strikes Back B baggies for the bounty hunters inside. Uh, as far as my favorite collecting moment, uh, it would have to be the virtual social uh, done by our Georgia group in August. Um, a lot of great moments to remember, especially behind the scenes, just making that happen. On August 16th, a Deal or No Deal member posted a photo of a trio of auctions that recently ended. The auctions were for pre-production pieces for the Kenner Power Droid figure. 
The first was a 21-back proof card from the original Star Wars line, which sold for $2,100. The second was a 45-back Empire Strikes Back proof with a realized price of $3,500. And the biggest and most desirable piece was the unproduced Power of the Force Chromalin. In the text accompanying the photo, the member put out an offer to buy any of the power droid pieces from whomever won them, in case they were looking to make money on a quick flip. That post set off a heated thread that continued for the next few weeks. In addition to the power droid pieces in the photo, the seller had auctioned two other proofs and a Return of the Jedi carded sample at the same time. All of the pieces sold for under what they were worth. The easiest explanation for this was that the seller was based in Europe, and for collectors in other countries or on other continents, their eBay search parameters may have caused them to miss these crucial auctions. Vintage pre-production runs rarely show up on eBay, and the winning bidders were thrilled to have picked up these power droid items for prices well below their market values. But the person who posted on Deal or No Deal looking for these pieces may have alerted other collectors who had missed out on the original auctions. A few collectors reached out to the seller after those who had won had already bought and paid for the items, in an attempt to get the seller to cancel the eBay deals and instead make deals with them for the pieces. Those who rightfully won the proofs, chromalin, and sample were devastated. At first, the seller went dark for a while and the buyers were concerned about getting their money back. When the seller finally contacted each of them after being faced with legal threats, he refunded them and told them he was considering keeping all of the pieces. In addition to being out hundreds of dollars in exchange fees for the purchases, a few of the winning buyers had sold off some rare pieces in order to raise funds for the PowerDroid proofs, ones they'd never get back but some were able to get screenshots of conversations from the seller, and it turned out a number of people reached out to him, urging him to cancel the deals. And while our community has had its share of controversies over the years, this one came at a point in which tensions were already high. And before I go any further, I will say that we are all human and have done things we regret, and this is not a judgment against anyone. But the most heartbreaking thing about it was that our collecting community had really pulled together during the pandemic. As I mentioned earlier, people took us into their homes and shared personal and private pieces in their collection, some of whom who have never done that previously. We spent time with one another in Zoom chats several times a week, and we all lived on Deal or No Deal through the spring and the summer. Soon, screenshots were shared, implicating one collector who had been in the hobby for a while. On the original Deal or No Deal post, he admitted he had reached out to the seller to try to block a sale, but only after screenshots were shared with the entire group. As a result, he was kicked off of Deal or No Deal and was banned from some of the other groups. In a hobby like this, trust is one of the cornerstones, and once that trust is broken in a large way it's very hard to get it back. Fortunately, collector and CIB head Tom Derby was able to facilitate a deal with the seller to get all the pieces into the hands of the original buyers. And while many of us were thrilled for our friends and were pleased to know that Tom was able to help them, the whole situation felt somewhat unresolved. 
To know that some collectors could have stabbed some of our friends in the back through these backdoor deals for what amounted to decades-old pieces of paper was discouraging. And the names rumored to have been involved was disheartening as well. After all, these were people with whom we had dined or spent time with at their homes, or shared moments at toy shows and conventions. People we called friends. And even though I wasn't personally involved with the drama surrounding the power droid sales, it turned me off to collecting into the community for a while. After all, they were interwoven too tightly to separate. The Zoom chats that had been a source of connection and a way to de-stress during the pandemic now added anxiety. I didn't feel comfortable sharing information about my collection or even being on the chats, especially with people who were possibly tied to these backdoor deals. I hated the fact that they not only let one person take the brunt of the blame for what had been a group effort, but that they continued on within the hobby like they didn't do anything wrong. And I know that their silence came down to two things. Either they were terrified of being cast out of a community they love and by whom are respected, or they did not want to lose the access to rare and valuable pieces that they've had for years through friends and connections. Or maybe they just truly do not care about anyone other than themselves and don't see anything wrong with what they did. Hopefully we all learn some valuable lessons from this. Truly. But also remember, collectors by nature are hunters. And just like we seek out information about rare pieces and about the history of items, we're also pretty good trackers too. And it's likely there's enough evidence out there about which the culprits aren't even aware. Not rumors and not guesses. And that information is probably very interesting. Probably helpful in knowing who to trust and who to avoid as well. Recently, I reached out to the collector who had been cast out of the community as a result of what had happened. He had contacted me a few months ago, and although we spoke for a while about collecting, I remained distant and closed down the conversation shortly after. I didn't want to get too close, because I really didn't know him or trust him, and I didn't know what his angle was. But as these months have passed, I've thought more and more about him. I felt for him. Regardless of what had happened in August, in the midst of a pandemic, we as a group shut the door on him for good. And the reason for doing so in the moment was totally justified, and it still is. But when you look at the larger picture, with everything going on and seeing what it has done to the mental states of those around us, I felt like we had let down one of our own. This isn't about the power droid incident. I can't preach forgiveness and then not show someone kindness. The good news is that he is doing well, and although he is no longer a part of the community, he's moved on and is in a good place mentally. And for him, it may have been a needed change. I'm embarrassed to say that the power droid situation really affected me. I began the month feeling burned out, and I was trying to continue at a pace of the previous seven months, and it wasn't working anymore. I had simply run out of energy, and I was letting things like this get to me and wear me down. Fortunately, it's during times like this in which we need our friends the most, and I had so many friends help me to get back on track. And the virtual social brought the focus back to what made collecting and our community so wonderful. Hey, I'm Glenn Williams. 
My favorite pickup of the year was my prototype Galactic Heroes Hera, and uh, it's got a really awesome story behind it. I had saw one on eBay, and I messaged a friend of mine, and I said, hey, man, is, is this legit? What's your opinion of it? And uh, we talked for a few minutes, and he goes, well, I, you know, I've got something I need to show you. And he sent me a picture of one that he had in his possession, and I was kind of in awe of it just because he had one because they're, you know, basically a unicorn. And next thing you know, he calls me on my computer and we're talking and he goes, I've got this and it, it belongs with you. And I want to send it to you just because you're awesome. Um, and my wife, you know, I'm in tears. My wife hears what's going on. She's in tears because she knows I've been looking for this piece for two years. And uh, yeah, that was that was pretty special. Uh, as far as my favorite collecting community memory has got to be doing the um, summer social in the Georgia group. It was it was an awesome event. We uh, Justin and the Ryan really worked their butts off for this thing, and you know just to be able to give something to, back to the community that that's given us so so much over the past three or four years. Uh, during this pandemic and this this crap 2020 year that we've had um, was just awesome. It, I felt like a kid on Christmas morning because I had finally had a con to go to. And because, you know, this year we had no cons and you couldn't sleep. You were like you had that con vibe going. Um, so that was awesome. As we approach 2020, many of us were planning on traveling to California at the end of August for Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. The convention, which draws tens of thousands of Star Wars fans from all over the world, was another casualty of the pandemic. And with each toy show and convention cancellation, our hopes of having a collector-focused trip dimmed. But the Georgia Alliance of Star Wars Collectors was determined to create something special in place of Star Wars Celebration. Something in which the farthest any of us would have to travel would be to the next room. The GASWC hosted an event called the Virtual Social, a series of shows and collector-themed panels that highlighted the joys of collecting and the conversations about the items, history, and films we love. But unlike most of the larger conventions we attend throughout each year, this one was put on by our friends. Our friends created it, planned it, and made it happen. Jason T.K. Sparrow Kane designed the advertisements for it. Mark Rusciano volunteered his time and his abilities to produce a premium quality live stream each day during that weekend. Jason Wasuko created funny commercials to be played between panels. And many collectors recorded video toasts to acknowledge all of the hard work and to share in the excitement of the GASWC event. Friday night kicked off with a roundtable panel highlighting the history of the Georgia Club. Narayan Nike then led viewers on a tour through his incredible collection of vintage Star Wars items, with a focus on all things Yoda, Luke Jedi, and Boba Fett. The Georgia group ended the night with one of the most creative and fun collecting moments of the year. Titled Back to Tank, A Swag Shark Experience, the live show was a take on the popular TV show Shark Tank. 
But instead of entrepreneurs offering investment ideas, it consisted of Star Wars collectors who specialized in making swag, which were items given out during a convention like Celebration, in order to celebrate and mark the event among friends old and new. The esteemed panel of sharks consisted of Narayan, Eric Janicki, Will Russ, and Micro Rob, Rob Amantea. It was a fantastic idea because people made souvenirs to give out at Celebration Anaheim. And when the event was canceled, the Back to Tank event not only gave collectors a chance to showcase those pieces, but to potentially trade them with some of the more passionate swag collectors in our hobby. The event was fun and irreverent, and brought with it the heart that is often at the intersection of creativity and genuine care for others within our community. The Back to Tank show was a perfect way to end a memorable kickoff to the weekend. Saturday offered more than eight hours of live panels, shows, and conversations, and the content was truly exciting. The day began with a chat between the event's hosts, which was followed by a panel featuring Matt George, Stephen Ward, and Gary Borbage, three collectors responsible for the essential resource, Engineering and Empire. The book spotlights many of the Kenner employees responsible for the toys from the original trilogy, and Matt, Stephen, and Gary discussed their experiences while writing it. After a short break, Justin Haney led a panel with Jim Swearingen, Tim Effler, and Douglas Miller called Kenner and Friends. For many of us who played with Star Wars action figures as children, being able to invite former Kenner employees to the virtual social for a conversation is something that would be high up on any bucket list. The Star Wars Prototypes and Production podcast was invited to be part of the weekend as well. Riding the momentum of the previous month's episodes that examined the Star Wars Collector's Marketplace, I hosted a panel with seven other collectors in which we looked at trends in different areas of collecting. My segment focused on the vintage-carded figures, running from 1984's skyrocketing Power of the Force collection through the droids and Ewoks figures from 1985. Ryan Humblehorder returned to give us an update of some of the loose figures that rose in value around that time. Elling Hogue gave us a compelling overview of the state of the vintage prototype market, and Anthony Pagano rounded off that segment with a look at modern prototypes. Chris Letty discussed all things Ahsoka and Clone Wars. Trent Bailey shared his insight about the Black Series and Mandalorian-related items. Jason Walsuko covered the Vintage Collection and the recent Retro line, and Clifton Cadbane Boggs concluded the panel with a look at the upcoming Hasbro releases. It was frankly thrilling to put something together like that, with each person offering truly valuable insight that would be interesting and beneficial to collectors. The panel turned out to be one of the most popular ones of the weekend, and it was a testament to the time and hard work of the seven collectors who joined me in bringing the panel to life. During the evening, Mark Rusciano and Michael Cooper hosted a special episode of Peg Warmers, their wickedly funny collectors-themed show, which felt perfect for a Saturday night. The final panel of the day was a conversation between Collectible Investment Brokerage's Tom Derby and Ben Sheehan titled The Collectible Investment Chat. Tom and Ben discussed collecting trends and shared some of their experiences within the hobby. And after the event, many collectors gathered on Zoom for an impromptu room sales and hangout event that ran well into Sunday morning. 
Sunday ended the event in style, with a panel highlighting Gus Lopez's legendary micro-collection and a closing ceremony celebration. In addition to the weekend far exceeding anyone's expectations in the best possible way, the Georgia Group also raised an outstanding $7,700 for the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Just to let this all sink in for a second, our friends put together a collector-centric weekend with amazing panels and wonderful fun memories that included many of us as active participants. It's so empowering to be able to point to our friends as the trailblazers and innovators of these types of events, ones that bring true joy and knowledge to others, along with creating genuine connections. And then to use this platform to raise $7,700 for a cause meaningful to all of us in helping the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta is a profound and beautiful thing. If the Empire State Club set the standard with its 2019 annual event, the Georgia Group raised the bar on the potential of what a local club can do. And I have a feeling the Empire State and Georgia Clubs will one day partner for an epic event in the future. Hello, Mr. Quinn. Justin Haney here. Appreciate you inviting me on the podcast today. 2020, absolutely crazy year. But fortunately for a lot of us, it was a very, um, very nice collecting year. It was, it was good for the collections. Um, everybody kind of stuck at home, which got them on the internet, on, on Deal or No Deal or, or making deals on eBay or, or whatnot. So for me personally, 2020 <clears throat> had a lot of highs, a lot of really good items. I think, you know, an item that comes to mind, um, being that this is the prototypes and production podcast, uh, I was able and, and lucky enough to pick up a couple items for the modern slave layer run, a hard copy from the vintage collection, and then a first shot from the trilogy collection. So not only are those really cool pieces, uh, great, great new additions to that run this year, but they came from a friend. They were items I've known about for a while and just through back and forth and chatting, um, you know, during COVID and not being able to, to go meet in person and this, that, and the other, you know, a lot of good friendships um, were formed and, and a lot of friendships I already had, you know, really blossomed. So I really like that piece. Um, it means a lot to me because of 2020 and, and how things went down this year. Um, came from a friend, I'd known about it, and uh, we were able to strike a deal. Outside of that, my favorite collecting memory from 2020 absolutely hands down has to be the virtual social that myself and the Georgia Alliance of Star Wars Collectors put on. Um, a huge event, a lot of hard work, a lot of people really stepped up. I want to thank my other admins and mods from the Georgia Alliance, uh, Mark Ruciano specifically for doing all the behind the scenes production work. Just a lot of people put in a whole lot of time and effort on that. Hands down, the 2020 virtual social. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever see something like that again, uh, but circumstances were right. And, and we made it happen within that event. Uh, my favorite part was being able to host the Kenner and friends panel. So hosting some of the former Kenner employees and just getting to talk with them for about an hour. So Dave, I appreciate you inviting me on. Um, I hope you had a great holiday season and wish you a happy new year. Cheers, my friend.
the Star Wars Prototypes and Production panel was a big hit at the Virtual Social, so I decided to publish an audio version of the podcast in September. Many of the participants recorded new and updated segments on their respective subjects. Justin Haney, one of the Georgia leaders responsible for the Virtual Social, had produced our video panel that weekend, and he joined us for the podcast episode. To have a voice within our hobby, and to be able to speak on various aspects of it, in which our fellow collectors learn something about the collectibles they love, is certainly not something that's lost on all of us. It was an honor to be a part of a group like this, and was certainly one of the highlights of the year for me. Right before Christmas, I received a package in the mail from Trent. Inside was a framed and matted photo taken from the closing credits of the virtual social weekend. Against the Starfield black background, in the iconic blue font that begins every Star Wars film, was the title Star Wars Prototypes and Production Live, followed by my name and the names of everyone who participated in our panel. Trent, Anthony, Clifton, Chris, Elling, Jason, and Ryan. But what made this gift incredibly special was that each person had signed it next to their name in silver or gold marker. This was no easy task, since it had to travel to Ohio, Nashville, Alabama, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and as far as Alberta, Canada. Trent later told me he had to track down Ryan over eBay, since he's not on social media. Each signature added to that frame photo took coordination and time, especially during a pandemic. And when viewed as a whole, it is at once touching and inspiring. I often say we collect these toys and prototypes because they serve to be tangible souvenirs of intangible moments and experiences. And that's what this frame photo will always be to me, a physical reminder of how we worked together as a group on that joyous weekend. To all of you who took the time to sign your name and then pass it on to the next person in a completely different state, thank you so very much. The photo now proudly hangs on a wall in my home in the perfect spot, right next to the one of me and Luke Skywalker, actor Mark Hamill. And if you're listening to this and you're part of a group project this year, consider doing something like this for somebody as a gift. As the recipient of this one, I can truly say that I've never received anything like it, and I think anyone who receives something similar would greatly appreciate it. In the earlier part of the month, I spoke with one of the co-panelists, Clifton Boggs, for an episode about his collecting journey and what it was like to live out a dream and to own his very own toy store. Clifton shared his experience of how he opened Happy Pappy's action figure extravaganza in January, which was two months before the pandemic took hold of the world. And one of the things he said to me has stayed with me all these months later, he explained that he was faced with a decision. He had a number of employees, and in order to keep them and pay them, he could either sell off all of his store's inventory, or he could take a second job. He chose the latter, working on fixing up apartments with his friends. That kind of dedication and leadership is so rare, and yet it doesn't surprise me that Clifton did that, because that's the kind of person he is. 
Happy Pappy's has reopened, and Clifton has been able to expand the store during this time, making it even bigger and better. And it is slowly becoming what he had hoped it would be, a place where he could serve his community, with his very own tattoo parlor right next door. Hello everyone, my name is Clifton Boggs. I wanted to share with you one of my favorite pickups of 2020. It was a 2008 Anakin Skywalker first shot, prototype, from the Clone Wars series. Earlier this year, I decided I was going to focus on the first 27 released from the Clone Wars. So without a doubt, 2020 has been very good to me. I got to add so many great pieces to my collection this year. It's very hard to narrow down what my favorite collecting moment would be this year. But I can say this. If you're in a Star Wars group, there's nothing like it. There's so many great conversations to have. There's so many great people to meet. There's so many great things that can come about being in a group. Okay, okay, Babu. I'm trying to hurry. I want to wish you guys Happy New Year and stay positive from me and... For as much research as I did for April's Clone Wars episode, it was nothing compared to what I had to do for October's series on the Darksaber. At the end of the first season of The Mandalorian, the big reveal was that the villainous Moff Gideon was in possession of the Darksaber, the weapon whose owner became the rightful ruler of the planet of Mandalore. With the second season beginning at the end of the month, I thought it would be a good idea to trace the history of the weapon to help fans of The Mandalorian understand its significance in Star Wars' canonical history. The Darksaber was forged by the first Mandalorian Jedi a thousand years before the era of the Clone Wars. And over that time period, it was passed down from generation to generation to the next ruler of Mandalore. In the past decade, the story of the Darksaber has been a focus in the Star Wars series. It was first introduced in the Clone Wars by Pre Vizsla, leader of an anarchic militant group called Death Watch. Pre Vizsla aimed to lead a rebellion to overthrow the new wave of peacekeeping rulers on the once militant planet and return Mandalore to its warlike ways. However, Pre Vizsla chose the wrong person with whom to align himself and lost the saber and his head to Darth Maul. Maul eliminated the peacekeepers and killed Obi-Wan's love, Mandalore's duchess Satine Kryz, and captured the throne. Satine's sister, the former Death Watch agent Bo-Katan Kryz, swore revenge on Maul, and with the help of Ahsoka and the clone army, defeated him. However, the Darksaber stayed in the possession of Maul for many years and was later discovered by another Mandalorian, Sabine Wren, in the Star Wars Rebels series. Sabine helped to return it to Bo-Katan, and through the support of the various Mandalorian clans, Bo-Katan became Mandalore's ruler. 
However, as we learned in the first season of The Mandalorian, once Emperor Palpatine took control over the galaxy, his Imperial army attacked Mandalore, killing tens of thousands of its people and melting down their specialized Beskar armor to be used as currency. Through that attack on the planet, Moff Gideon stole the Darksaber. And now, Bo-Katan and some of the surviving warriors of Mandalore hunted Gideon. Bo-Katan hoped to take back the saber in order to unite the scattered Mandalorians and regain control of Mandalore. This is just a snapshot of the story behind this black-bladed weapon, but there was so much information about it that what was originally envisioned as one podcast episode grew into three. And while the story of the Darksaber is fascinating enough, the fact that Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni continued it in the live-action Mandalorian series highlights how important continuity and the stories of the past are to the Lucasfilm storytellers. Hi, this is Fonz Napolitano from Syracuse, New York. My favorite pickup of the year was my first shot, Slave One, from the Power of the Force 2 line with the 1981 copyright date on it. Uh, it's my favorite pickup for a couple reasons. First being, I do have a Boba Fett focus, so it was nice to add a piece like, a pre-production piece like this to the Boba Fett collection. Secondly, it uh, gave me an opportunity to call my friend David Quinn and talk about this piece because I really respect his opinion when it comes to pre-production um, modern pieces, and one of the things that, one of the pieces of advice he gave me was, uh, this is probably the closest you're ever going to come to picking up a first shot Slave 1, so I, I, I definitely think, uh, you know, you should seriously consider picking this up, and subsequently I was able to make the deal, and uh, I'm very happy with that acquisition. Secondly, the, my I actually have two favorite meetups from this year. The first is uh, occurred in March with Stephanie and Chris Riley. They came in right before everything went to hell uh, in March to discuss plans for the annual that was supposed to take place in, I think it was July. And uh, we went to a bunch of different hotels, and we decided on the hotel, decided on the caterer, and we had a really great time. And uh, obviously, unfortunately, we had to cancel all that, but uh, we will definitely be rescheduling the annual, hopefully in 2021. And uh, I hope everybody looks forward to that, and everybody that can make it out to Syracuse, New York, you're in for a great time. Um, We're going to have a lot of things going on. Uh, Secondly... Uh, my second favorite meetup of the year was a, I had a very small socially distanced meetup at my house in Syracuse for some of the upstate collectors. And why I really enjoyed this was because there's a lot of collectors here uh, from upstate that generally don't get to come to or have never been to a meetup or don't get to come to meetups. But since Syracuse is centrally located, it allowed for some of these guys that are new to the Empire State Club to come and see what a meetup is like. And hopefully they'll be at... Uh, at some of the ones of the future. Um, but it was fun because it was, you know, nice and we were able to be outside, socially distanced, and I think, uh, you know, everybody felt safe. So uh, thank you for letting me record this video or this message, and uh, I look forward to seeing everybody soon. In October, I also went to my second and final toy show of the year. Throughout the spring and summer, every toy show that had been announced or postponed was canceled eventually, and by the time we were well into the fall, I had given up hope on attending another one in 2020. Joe Viteri, the owner of ToyCon NJ, had tried to set up a show at the end of the summer, but it was canceled at the last minute due to the governor implementing heavy restrictions on public gatherings. 
But Joe was determined to proceed with Toy-Con NJ and to do it in the safest way possible. In October, he moved it to a different location and instituted strict rules limiting the number of attendees in the building at one time. In addition, hand sanitizer was available at every table, masks had to be worn by everyone at all times, and the tables had to be set far enough apart to adhere to the social distancing guidelines. I felt conflicted about going. I was concerned about keeping myself and my family healthy, and at the same time, I had been home for so long that I felt that going to a show would revitalize me. I needed to be around my friends again, and to do what felt normal and natural again. And for most collectors, hunting for toys with friends just makes sense, especially when the world does not. The experience was a wild one. There were times in which I was acutely aware of the risk I was taking, and as quickly as that wave would wash over me and would pound against my head, a new one would roll in, sweeping me up into the moment, and I would forget about the pandemic, or even that I and the people around me were wearing masks. My plan was to take the trip to Wayne, New Jersey, with the idea that if I felt uncomfortable at any time, I would just leave. Even if I decided to leave as I was approaching the front doors of the Police Athletic League, I would turn around and head home, with the knowledge that I wasn't ready to attend an event just yet. But knowing your friends are going to be with you certainly helps. Pete LaRose had asked me to help him unload his car and set up his vendor table on that Friday, and I was happy to do so. Plus, being there before the show opened to the public, or even to the early bird shoppers, meant there would be less people around initially, and the show would feel less overwhelming. But as soon as I got my wristband and walked through the open double doors of the Athletic League's larger gymnasium, I fell right back into the rhythm of hunting for toys. I cannot tell you how good it felt to look around across that large room, seeing table after table filled with boxes and bins and not knowing what was waiting for me. Some of the dealers had arrived earlier than I did, and as they set up, I walked up and down the aisles, almost completely by myself. One table in particular caught my eye, and I cut through some of the tables to jump an aisle to get to it. Two gentlemen were hunched over behind their main table, still in the process of emptying the boxes they brought with them. But what was already on display was a Star Wars collector's dream. They had many of the Kenner playsets and vehicles in their original boxes on white plastic shelves on top of the shelves surrounding them. The boxes were a little worn, but it was rare to see this many vintage items at a toy show. Some of the vehicles sat on top of the boxes in order to catch the eye of a passerby. But for me, the real draw was what appeared to be neatly arranged rows of carded Star Wars figures. They were customs or recarded figures, but I asked one of the owners if he had any other Star Wars figures, and he told me he hadn't put the authentic ones out just yet. He motioned for me to step behind the table and told me I could go through some of the boxes of figures he and his partner hadn't displayed yet. I lifted each carded figure out of the large cardboard box and inspected each one, putting a few of the nicer ones off to the side before going through the next two boxes. The dealer and I spent some time talking about the toys of our childhoods, and it felt nice to spend time discussing Star Wars with a new friend. 
We agreed on a price for my lot, and I walked away with a carded Emperor's Royal Guard and a carded Power of the Force A-Wing pilot and Imperial Dignitary. For someone who had not been to a toy show since February, this felt like an enormous win. I was really excited to spend time with Pete. We talk on the phone all the time, but being in the same room is so important. And standing in front of his booth and talking to him while he sold items to toy show attendees was really how we met and became friends in the first place. Pete's displays and arrangements are always perfectly designed. His tables are truly some of the best at any toy show, and he takes pride in the quality of his pieces and in the variety of his offerings. I'm always amazed at the pieces he turns up and how much he knows about so many lines from the past 40 years. He and I catch up in between discussions and transactions he has with customers, and I've learned so much from him over the years. There's a rhythm to toy shows. It's as if someone is playing a soft melody on a classical guitar while the musicians around them are bustling with sound and movement. And yet, it works. Our friend Ryan Humblehorter was also selling a toy con that weekend. Where some people brought lower-priced items as a way to clear out inventory, Ryan brought literal buckets of loose, vintage Star Wars figures. He had more Power of the Force figures than I think I've ever seen in one room before, stacked and preserved in large Ziploc bags that were filled to the point in which he was barely able to seal them. Ryan opened bin after bin at his feet, pulling out similar Ziploc bags with the colorful droids and Ewoks characters. Ryan does multiple shows each year, and with the pandemic shutting down most of them, his inventory had piled up over the past few months. Shoppers were treated to some incredibly rare and desirable loose figures that weekend, along with a number of carded figures from the later Kenner Star Wars run. It was fun to stand around his booth at times, just to watch the expression of the attendees as they gaped at some of the glass display cases on his table, motioning to their friends to check out the trove in front of them. My plan to stay for an hour or two went out the window pretty quickly, and soon I realized I was going to be at ToyCon, New Jersey for the rest of the day. More and more friends started to show up. I spent more than a half hour in the hallway near the entrance to the gymnasium talking to F.J. DiRobertis and Robin Bokra. I hadn't seen either of them since the meetup at Ross's house, and it was just nice to be together in person again. And Robin and I met up with Dennis Ciccolero later in the day, and we took some photos outside together against the bluest sky I can remember since the summer. As I was getting ready to leave for the day, I ran into Adam Marks. He had one of the best scores from the show, grabbing a carded made-in-Mexico biker scout from the Return of the Jedi line. Unlike the standard version, this one has a small mouth and is heavily desirable among collectors of figure variants. Riding home, I spoke to a few friends who had wanted to hear what the toy show was like. I realized a number of my friends, especially within the Empire State Club, would be considering attending the show that weekend and I wanted to give them an idea of my experience. So I posted the following note, which I'd like to share with you now. It was interesting reading it again, and remembering how I felt after the first day. A quick assessment of being back at a toy show after months of quarantine. It felt nice. I also felt anxious at times, like facing waves larger than me that I couldn't shake. 
Everyone seemed really thankful to be able to attend a show like ToyCon NJ and follow the safety protocols and regulations put in place by the show and state. I wanted to go to Cincinnati for the toy show this weekend. I realized very quickly today that I made the right decision not to. I was not ready to do so yet. Attending a show that was an hour from me felt okay because I knew I could turn around at any moment and head back home. Masks were worn by everyone at all times while inside. Hand sanitizers were stationed at most tables and around the venue. The aisles were wide and the attendees were surprisingly incredibly respectful of others. It's funny, nobody knows how to greet one another just yet. Do we hug like the old days or do we fist bump, elbow bump, or just smile through our masks and nod at each other? I guess the answer is that it's up to you and the person you're facing. And that's okay. There's no wrong answer, because we're all dealing with our own levels of comfort. Awkwardness is okay too, because we know we'll eventually be back to handshakes and hugs again. Seeing some of our friends in person choked me up a little today. Seeing others brought out laughter and absolute joy. Because frankly, it's been too long, and the last time we were all together was a month or so before the pandemic crested. So it was nice. It is probably not for everybody right now. It might not even be for me just yet. But it was the absolute best experience it could have been. It's likely the last show of the year for me. ToyCon NJ usually falls on the second week in November and is a nice end to the toy show run each year. I'm glad I went. I picked up a few items for some very fair prices and got to walk around a toy show and see friends for a bit. If anyone reading this is out in Cincinnati, I'm so jealous and wish I could be there. Be safe out there because I want to make it to the next one and see you there. And for those of you heading out to ToyCon this weekend, have fun. Be safe and protect yourself as much as you can and be patient and considerate of others. This was a really nice step forward. Also, there were so many Funko Pops. So many Funko Pops. And if you're wondering where all of the modern Star Wars vintage collection and Black Series figures that went missing from your local Target or toy store, spoiler alert, they're in Wayne, New Jersey at the Police Athletic League Center. Later that evening, I received a call from Pete on his way home from the first day of the show. I expressed my concern about going back a second day, and he pushed it aside as only he could do and reminded me that most of our friends were attending on Saturday, and I would regret it if I didn't return to see them. And as usual, Pete was right. Our friends often provide a clarity that we might miss otherwise, and Pete has certainly been that voice of reason and wisdom over the years. So I trekked north again on Saturday and found myself walking through the doors of the Police Athletic League Center for day two of ToyCon NJ. I left my house at 6 a.m., and as much as I would have preferred to sleep in a bit longer, getting up before the sun came up brought a sense of normalcy to the weekend. Because that's what I would do for almost every show I attended before the pandemic. While I was uneasy during the ride up on Friday, Saturday's ride felt normal again. It was nice to drive up the Garden State Parkway with very few cars on the road and to immerse myself in someone else's podcast episode, like old times. 
Saturday morning was a busy one at the show. The missing third of the vendors from the day before showed up, and the place was filled up pretty quickly. Due to crowd restrictions, there was a line outside for most of the day, as people had to wait for attendees to leave before they were permitted to enter. If Ryan didn't get much sleep the night before, it didn't show. I ran into him as I was walking in, and he was wearing what I had assumed to be a girl's vintage matching vinyl cap and satchel with the name Julie imprinted on the side. Seeing the sight in person made the trip worthwhile. Hello, Julie, I said as I passed him. David, he said, nodding like he wasn't wearing a 70s girl's vinyl dress-up kit. Ryan did very well at the show that weekend, and he was having a blast. There wasn't a time in which someone wasn't looking through his displays for a piece they needed for their collection. And his area became even more crowded Saturday morning. Every time I'd walk by, he'd fill me in on what sold since the last time by pointing out the empty hanger pegs and spots in the glass cases. And then as quickly as something would leave his table, he'd go back through the bins of loose and carded figures and would restock. Before lunch, members of the Empire State Club showed up. Rob Amatea, John Peck, Gordy Owen, Mark Rusciano, Chris and Steph Riley, Brian and Sandra Emery, Sean and Declan Moynihan, Ed Nagy, and Al Torillo, to name a few. We met up in a little alcove that served food behind the main gym, and while some grabbed a quick bite, we pulled up to a larger table and took some time to laugh together and to just be with one another again. Our group then fanned out into smaller ones to visit the different rooms to hunt for toys. I hadn't eaten yet, and neither had Al, and the two of us couldn't wait for whenever the rest of the group would break for lunch, so before Al left that afternoon, he and I went into the cafeteria. It's funny, I had been at ToyCon for almost two days and did not realize the venue had a full-size cafeteria. Inside the large room were row after row of white tables filled with gray folding chairs that sat completely unused. Occasionally a person would stroll in and would walk around the perimeter. But after being in a crowded gymnasium for a few hours, the idea of sitting with a friend and sharing a meal together in total peace and quiet was a blessing. Al and I reminisced about our trip to Celebration Orlando in 2017. He showed me a new tattoo that he had gotten recently as a tribute to his daughters, whom he loves dearly. Although we talk on the phone regularly, we hadn't seen one another since February Zolocon. And as humans, we often do not realize how we long for that in-person connection until we no longer have it, when it's no longer possible. The Empire State Club decided to leave the show for a while and have lunch at an outdoor pizza restaurant nearby. But by the time we, they were ready to eat, I was ready to head home. Looking back on it now, I know I missed a special time by not joining them, and I regret it. But after two days of being at the show and knowing I had what would be close to a two-hour ride home, I was tired. So I said goodbye to the dealers and friends that were inside the venue. Our group walked through the doors of the Police Athletic League for the last time that weekend. When we got to the area in which most of us were parked, we stayed there for a while, standing in a circle and recounting funny collecting stories from years and decades past, from meetups and conventions. I stayed and watched as each group of friends piled back into the cars in which they came and took off for the pizza place, following one another in a procession. 
And then, taking one last look at the building and at the line of attendees still waiting to get in, I got into my car and followed the roads I took when I would first travel to my first toy shows almost a decade ago. It felt like the perfect way to end what had been a perfect weekend, one that I didn't think I'd experience in 2020. ToyCon New Jersey has been and will always be one of my favorite toy shows to attend each year. I've been able to find some incredible pieces over the years, like a Taiwan Boba Fett figure that I bought for $20 that graded an AFA 90+, or a carded 31A Empire Strikes Back Snowtrooper that was unpunched and graded straight 85s. At the fall 2019 show, a younger dealer brought what amounted to be a full booth housing a museum-quality display of McFarlane prototypes for sale. Everything from clay sculpts and two-up hard copies to multicolor first shots for characters from the X-Files, musicians like Alice Cooper and Kiss, and desired characters from McFarlane's own creation, Spawn. Each show has produced new surprises, and you truly never know what you'll find. But as it has grown in popularity since its premiere in June of 2014, something wonderful has happened. It has become a destination event for many of our friends. In addition to attending the show, a large group of us will take time out during the day and will descend upon a local diner for lunch or dinner. It has become a staple of the ToyCon NJ experience, and it's something I hope will continue for years to come. Hi, this is Adam Marks. My favorite item that I picked up this year has got to be the Colombian Yuppie game board that goes along with the Star Wars figures. Uh, for anybody who has gotten to know me knows I've become obsessed with these little plastic figures from the 80s uh, that literally came in potato chip bags down in Colombia. And uh, my understanding is if you got in these multi-packs, there was this giveaway of a game board. It was literally a, a you know piece of paper board game that you can use the figures to play on and has been kind of one of the big grails of UP collecting and I have been looking for one of these for a number of years now never found one for sale but I was able to get one this year and I was just absolutely ecstatic I couldn't believe I finally have one of these things and you know doesn't get any better than that as far as my favorite collecting memory probably would have to be the meetup at Ross's back in January you know it was actually my first Empire State Club meetup. It was great just meeting a whole bunch of people, hanging out with a bunch of old friends, you know, say getting to meet a whole bunch of new people. I thought it was definitely a great start to a great year. Uh, I was looking forward to being able to go to a whole lot more meetups. Those ended up being all Zoom meetups, which in and of themselves actually were a whole a lot of fun and definitely got to really get to know a bunch of people in the club, probably more than I would had, you know, just for you know a couple of meetups a year. Um, and actually look forward to going to those when we uh, when we keep having them. But really, that meetup at Ross's was such a fun time and really got me energized for the community. And like I said, I hope the world opens up soon again and we can definitely do more of those because I know I want to go to more of them because it was just such a blast. So here's looking to 2021. Here's looking to more meetups. And here's looking to uh, more UP figures.
As I mentioned earlier, I was supposed to drive out that same weekend to Cincinnati, Ohio for the annual toy show. The Cincinnati show was still happening, but with COVID and the quarantine, I wasn't comfortable traveling a long distance to an event like that. For me, the trips out to Ohio were always exciting, filled with good meals at unique restaurants and a few good nights rest at some nice hotels. And a Cincinnati weekend was so much more than a toy show. It was filling a hotel with all of our friends, going for meals together and to collectors' homes for impromptu and planned meetups. It was spending hours in the hotel lobby after returning from the show's setup in order to hang out and buy and sell rare Star Wars collectibles at the room sales event. With the pandemic, none of that was possible this year. And a Cincinnati weekend without the meals and the room sales and things like 30 or 40 people walking to a Waffle House the size of my kitchen at 1 a.m. after room sales just wouldn't be the same. Each year, one of the things that makes this show special is that our friends drive in and fly in from all over to be there, so we can all be together. I would have been crushed if it was a year like any other, and for some reason I was unable to attend. But knowing that it was an anomaly, and that the vast majority of collectors would not be attending, made it a little easier to let go for this year. And it's a shame, too. A number of collectors from the Empire State Club had planned on attending the Cincinnati Toy Show for the first time, and people from other states were going to join them as well. But it just means we're going to have to make the next one that much more special. Since I wasn't there, I asked our good friend Trent Bailey to give us an idea on what the weekend was like. Trent drove up from Nashville, Tennessee, and spent the weekend with another dear friend, Kyle Rose. Here's Trent with a recap of the 2020 Cincinnati Toy Show. Hey, this is Trent Bailey from Nashville, Tennessee. Dave asked me to come on here and kind of give a recap of the Cincinnati Toy Show. Now, typically, the Cincinnati Toy Show is a um, a mecca of sorts for Star Wars uh, vintage toy collectors. Uh, happens every year in October, and many people like myself uh, make the trip basically yearly um and we've gone for the last four or five years in a row now um it's probably my favorite toy show that i go to um but uh this year it marked the first one just because of covid and the uh lockdowns and everything um so you know from the get-go it was going to be an interesting year to say the least but um some things were drastically different than usual um the number one being that the you know the amount of people that um showed up this year was definitely less um especially on the uh from the side of like friends in the hobby um typically there would be many people from you know far away you know as far as california or canada that even come down for the show but this year that just wasn't in the cards um but what that did allow was for some more one-on-one time with other friends that maybe don't get a chance to see as often so this trip we got to spend a whole lot of time with um our friend Kyle Rose and his family, uh, as well as the Lemkul brothers um, and, and several other people that, you know, we see a little bit when we're at these shows, but, you know, we got to actually spend some quality time. So that was that was a really cool part of it. Um, uh, in general, one of the big uh, highlights of the Cincinnati Toy Show is typically the preview night room sales or the um, setup night room sales, that is, um, usually happening at an adjacent hotel close to the convention um this year that they didn't have that um 
partially because maybe there weren't enough people, but also the concerns of, you know, proximity, you know, keeping six feet distance and just overall COVID precautions. So not having that this year was definitely interesting. Um, you know, a bunch of us still got together um, safely and uh, and had a good time and enjoyed company and talked Star Wars and even did a little bit of trading. Um, but w- that was one big thing that just wasn't there this year. And I know all of us will go next year or whenever we can and enjoy it even more when we can. But um, that's not the only thing that really happens at Cincinnati. You know, there's a whole lot of other cool stuff to do. And the show itself, even though it may have been smaller or maybe less attended, it still was a lot of fun. Uh, and there were a lot of great items to find. Um, there was, as usual, a good representation of vintage Star Wars or vintage Kenner items in general, but also plenty of, you know, other licenses, other toy manufacturers, other eras. I mean, anything from the, you know, 50s all the way to current, you know, you'd see a lot of it. Um, one nice thing about the Cincinnati show is that it's not just one of those typical uh, kind of comic book convention style shows where you get a lot of, you know, multiple pop dealers or um, just everybody has, you know, the most mo- most latest issue Black Series figures or vintage collection figures that are marked up. You know, that's not really what the show is about. It really is a vintage toy show, but there is still some modern. Um, you know, some cool pieces that showed up. You know, there were several uh, Power of the Force 2 hard copies, um, some Power of the Force 2 two-dimensional art, uh, original art or concept art. Um, of course, a number of vintage um, prototype pieces showed up. Um, and, and a plethora of you know, production, you know, Kenner stuff. Um, there's always a couple really key things that show up, and um, I think maybe this year it was a little bit less, just because the who all did show up or who all didn't, for that matter. Um, but in general, it was a great show. I picked up a couple great things from my collection. I had a good time with Kyle and his family and uh, everybody else that we got to hang out with. Um, you know, always look forward to this show. It's one of the top four in the country, in my opinion, and it remains my favorite just because of the history involved with the city and, you know, the people we see there. Um, but it was a little bit weird, but still very enjoyable. And um, hope this was kind of a decent recap. Um, probably missed a whole lot of stuff, but um, it was uh, it was good. It was good to get out, good to make our first toy show this year in Cincinnati, and uh, looking forward to more in the next year. Uh, probably starting with Toylanta in Atlanta in March. So, uh, anyway, uh, thanks for having me on, Dave. Uh, I'll get it back to you now. In November, I was looking for another way to connect with friends through the podcast, and an idea came to me over a weekend. I thought it would be fun and hopefully interesting to do a roundtable discussion with a few of the prominent and newer Ahsoka collectors within the hobby. Ahsoka's popularity has soared over the past year. As an Ahsoka fan and collector, I know what the character has meant to me, but I was curious to hear from other friends as to why and how they became Ahsoka collectors. I loved how George Lucas and Dave Filoni used her as the lens for an audience to experience the era of the Clone Wars. 
I began to collect Ahsoka pre-production pieces as a way to keep that connection to the Clone Wars and how I thoroughly enjoy the series. But I didn't know if my experience was one that others related to in a similar way. So I contacted Will Russ, Fonz Napolitano, Clifton Boggs, Chris Letty, and F.J. DiRobertis to see if they would want to be a part of the roundtable discussion. The response from the group surprised me. Within literally two minutes of posing the idea, all five collectors had not only agreed to doing the episode, but were really excited at the prospect of it. Planning for the episode was fun, but even more rewarding was the connection the six of us built as friends. We began to share new acquisitions and to discuss some of the new Ahsoka merchandise releases. Conversations about her live-action appearances led to weekly chats about the latest Mandalorian episode, and we really got to know one another better on a daily basis. Doing the podcast episode was a really positive experience. So much so that when I suggested we continue the roundtable in a second episode, everyone agreed. In the first episode, we talked about how we became Ahsoka collectors and about the moments from her arc that resonated with us. In the second one, we discussed the figure releases from 2008 to the present. And the roundtable doesn't end with December's episode. In fact, my goal is to have this wonderful group return throughout the year as well. We already have the next episode planned, and I think you'll really enjoy it. With the new live-action Ahsoka series on the way, it will be interesting to see where Dave Filoni and Disney take our beloved character next. And Will, Clifton, Chris, FJ, Fonz, and I will certainly be ready to share our thoughts about all things Ahsoka Tano. Hi, this is FJ DiRobertis. Um, my favorite pickup of the year was actually three pickups that eventually kind of came into one piece. Um, first part of that was an early bird kit with figures that were sealed in their baggies. Um, took the whole set and I put into it a nice acrylic case. Then I acquired a second Luke Skywalker figure, also sealed in a baggie, but this one was the double telescoping Luke. Um, and that was graded with a grade of 85. And I put that with the set, kind of goes together. And finally, um, I was able to acquire a very mint and complete early bird certificate and envelope set. So it kind of rounded off that whole package. Um, this is my favorite pickup uh, because this is a set that I really never thought that I would have in my collection. And one of the things I really love about it is that it's a true piece of, of true Kenner Star Wars history. Um, so when people come into my collection and I'm explaining things to them, it's a really nice place to start. Uh, it was kind of almost the birth of Kenner action figures. So that's why it's my favorite pickup of the year. Um, my favorite collecting moment um, of this year was actually my very first meetup that I ever went to back in January before the pandemic hit. Um, we were at Ross Barr's house um, and it really started some really nice, wonderful friendships that I'm really grateful for. Um, and I have some connections and, and friends that I'm talking to almost on a daily basis now because of that meetup. Also because of that meetup, I connected with some people and became friends with, uh, people who share a passion for Ahsoka Tano, as I do, um, as well as prototype collecting. And these friends have also, you know, helped me start a whole new fresh path in, in Star Wars collecting that I didn't have before. Um, but what that meetup really proved to me is that Star Wars collecting 
is really about the connections and the friendships that you make, not the things that you get. It's the people that you acquire along the way. So that's kind of my year, uh, even though it was a very, very challenging year. Uh, a lot of great things happened this year. So looking forward to 2021. Celebrating the December holidays with collectors is always a treat. This year was markedly different, as many of the meetups and celebrations shifted toward virtual platforms like Zoom, but they were fun and exciting nonetheless. The Empire State Club celebrated the holidays in style on the night of December 12th through a virtual meetup that included a secret Santa gift exchange, a wine and liquor tasting, and the opportunity to throw on a velvet blazer and to spend some time with some of my favorite people in the community. The group really enjoys being together, and many stayed on until the early hours of the next morning. Holiday parties are innately festive and joyous, and this one was up there with the best of them. The Georgia Alliance was not able to host its annual winter social weekend this year in person, so the club prepared the next best thing, a holiday-themed event spanning two weeks titled 12 Days of Winter. Beginning December 1st, 12 Days of Winter consisted of a different theme each day, hosted by a different club member. The host posted a video in the morning explaining the theme and encouraging other members and viewers to get involved, whether it was through a scavenger hunt, a virtual event, or sharing pictures around the theme. I had the honor of hosting Day 7, which carried the hashtag PlayHoth. The idea behind Play Hoth was to encourage collectors to play with their toys, whether with their loved ones and their children, or in something as simple as setting up their toys in a holiday setting and sharing photos of their creativity. The day before, I pulled out many of my loose figures that weren't cased in acrylic and took photos of them in various poses around the decorated rooms of my house. I placed Lando, Han, Luke, Leia, C-3PO, and Chewbacca in various sections of our Christmas Village train setup, as our heroes stood amongst the wispy cotton snowscape. I hung Hammerhead from my main Christmas tree and snapped a pic. I inserted the Rebel's droid chopper into the nativity scene and left him there until the rest of my family finally found him before Christmas. My goal was to have a number of creative and funny photos to share each hour between 9am and midnight. I have to say, I had the best time planning it out and taking those pictures around my house. And in preparation for the PlayHoth event, I actually felt like a kid again, playing with my toys. It was fun to grab a figure or two and to run around the house with a camera and tripod, figuring out what to shoot next. The event kicked off with a tree lighting on the first day, an ugly sweater contest on the second, and a secret Santa exchange known to Star Wars fans as White Wampa. On the fourth, the group held a Toys for Tots fundraiser and encouraged collectors from all states to partake in local Toys for Tots drop-offs as well. The fifth, sixth, and seventh consisted of sharing photos of ornaments, embarking on a scavenger hunt, and the aforementioned Play Hoth event. The themes for the next three days were posting Star Wars holiday art, sharing childhood photos, and a Star Wars-themed Seasons Greetings card contest. 
For the final two days, we had a virtual event followed by a live meetup at Glenn Williams' house for anyone in the area who could attend. The 12 Days of Winter was a wonderful way to take time out to focus on the holidays and to celebrate and laugh with friends along the East Coast and beyond. There are years in which the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas seemed to soar past me, and I missed out on the chance to really appreciate and to actively participate in the holiday season. This year, with the help of my friends, each day became a special reminder of the joy that Christmas and the holidays bring. Hi, I'm Will Russ, a.k.a. Grover Solo. Even though 2020 was a craptastic year, many awesome things happened in my collecting world. My favorite acquisition must be my gentle giant Ahsoka Tano bust. The reason why? Well, I missed out on the initial offering due to a problem with my Premier Guild account, and it sold out crazy fast. I tried again and spoke to Diamond while we were in Chicago. They said they had no idea that that character would be so popular, but they had several projects that were in the works. I kept searching, and luckily a friend from across the pond was able to hook me up with a seller. Now, my favorite collecting memory of 2020 has to be the Georgia Alliance of Star Wars Collectors Virtual Summer Social. I know that's a mouthful, but I'm honored to have been selected for the Back to Tank event for swag. It was a Herculean effort on so many people's parts, and it felt like it rivaled an actual convention. In a year of social distancing, I think extraordinarily strong bonds have been made. Friendships have blossomed, and we will all be the stronger on the other side of this. I'm honored to know so many of you and can't wait for us all to be together again. May the Force be with you, always. December also marked the end of the second season of The Mandalorian. Disney released each of the eight episodes at midnight on the West Coast each Friday morning between October 30th and December 18th. That translated to a 3 a.m. airing on the East Coast. For the first few episodes of the series, my routine was to stay off social media through the day of release, and then to finally watch the show Friday night before I went to sleep. However, as each week passed, it became harder and harder to avoid spoilers. They were all over, on websites and in the daily news feeds on my phone and my computer. Friends would text me about their reactions without asking if I had seen the episode first. Fortunately, I was able to go into each episode spoiler-free, and to me, it really kept the experience a purer one. But around episode 5, titled The Jedi, I had to change my viewing habits. I remember speaking to a friend the night before, and he asked if I thought we'd see Ahsoka, who was rumored to appear in the series in the upcoming episode. I said no, my feeling was that Ahsoka would make her appearance toward the end of the season, as one of the big, audience-catching reveals. And so, I went to bed with that reasonable thought in my mind. But as I tried to fall asleep, I thought more and more about it, and quickly decided I was probably wrong. After all, the episode was titled The Jedi, and it was not only directed by Dave Filoni, the creator and caretaker of Ahsoka, but it was written by him as well. I sprang out of bed and set my alarm for 6 a.m. That decision turned out to be a good one. Bleary-eyed, I sat in front of my screen the next morning, in my pajamas, trying to wake up as a recap clip of the previous episode played. 
the screen went to black, and the first images of the new episode appeared. Masked characters faced the camera, aiming at something as it descended upon them. Within seconds, I saw a familiar image that my brain couldn't comprehend or place. A shadow-like figure in a hooded robe appeared, wielding two white-bladed lightsabers. My mind finally clicked awake, and I paused the video instantly. I didn't blink. I didn't even move. I just sat there for a few seconds as I rewound what I had just seen in my mind. As I stared at the screen, the scene I had just watched unfolded again, and I paused it immediately where I'd paused it before. Ahsoka Tano had made the live-action jump into The Mandalorian. As popular as she had been, after that day, Ahsoka would become a household name among Star Wars fans old and new. The season was a joyous one. Another Filoni favorite, the female Mandalorian and previous owner of the Darksaber, Bo-Katan Kryze, made her live-action debut as well. Bo-Katan's former story arc from Rebels now continued through the Mandalorian, as she sought out the show's villain Moff Gideon in an effort to defeat him in battle and reclaim the saber. And perhaps one of the biggest jolts to exhilarate the fanbase was the re-emergence of the original bounty hunter in Mandalorian armor, Boba Fett. Long believed to have perished in the Sarlacc pit after being knocked into it by Han Solo in 1983's Return of the Jedi, the beloved antagonist survived, and had tracked Din Djarin in an effort to retrieve the armor that once belonged to him and his father. In the 1980s and 1990s, Boba Fett had a growing cult following similar to what Ahsoka has today. A large part of his appeal lies in the fact that we knew very little about him from the original trilogy. He lurked in the shadows, hunting down the rebels for clients like Darth Vader and Jabba the Hutt. But beyond the distinctive armor and the elephant head-shaped ship he flew, the appeal was largely lost on me. I wasn't really a fan because I didn't connect to Boba Fett. This season of The Mandalorian changed that. The writers began to flesh out his character, adding layers to him. Boba was no longer a bounty hunter. He was robed like a Jedi, tracking and fighting like a Tusken Raider. And yet, when he finally caught up with Din Djarin, we saw Boba in an entirely new light. He was willing to help Din rescue Grogu in exchange for his armor, and he kept his word long after he was reunited with the suit that meant so much to him. Dave Filoni had demonstrated an internal moral struggle in the young Boba when we first saw him in the Clone Wars, but to see him as one of the heroes of the Mandalorian gave fans a fresh take on a beloved character. But the biggest and most emotional reunion came during the season finale on December 18th. Leading up to the episode, we knew that in an effort to get Grogu the proper training he would need, Din had taken the little green creature to a mountain on which he could contact a Jedi. Grogu had reached out through the Force across the galaxy in an effort to summon one of the last remaining Jedi, if there were any left. And in the finale, one Jedi returned. Aboard Moff Gideon's ship, the tension rose as we watched our heroes, Din, Cara Dune, Fennec Shan, and Bo-Katan, as they prepared to defend themselves against an army of nearly impenetrable dark troopers. 
The armor of these elite droids repelled blaster fire, and Din was almost destroyed trying to fight one of them. The group, holed up in the ship's main control room, watched on monitors as the army of dark troopers converged into a formation and headed toward them. There was no way to escape. They and the little green child would be dead at the hands of the approaching droids. But from a window behind them, we watched as a single X-Wing fighter plane emerged and landed in the hangar bay. We had seen X-Wings in the Mandalorian before. They were usually members of the Republic patrolling the galaxy. But this was different. This time, there was only one. If you watch any of the recorded reaction videos to this scene, you'll generally see a similar scene among fans, one that chokes me up every time I watch one. Because I get it. I know the exact feeling. We all do. Viewer after viewer does the same thing. They pause, they shake themselves out of shock, and as they realize what is happening, their eyes begin to widen. Their mouths drop open, hanging that way as they wait for confirmation as to what they're witnessing. And their eyes slowly well up with tears, and their hands instinctively reach toward their faces. And as the scene unfolds, a transformation occurs within each of them. They de-age before our eyes, returning to childhood, where traveling across the galaxy is possible, and where the Force is wholly real, and surrounds us, and guides us. We join them in that return to childhood with the return of the Jedi. And as children, we are reunited with the green saber-wielding black love Jedi who moves through the ship, deftly cutting down droid after droid as only he can. We know who he is because we've always known him. We've watched the films over and over again, and now, for one day, we get our hero back just as we remembered him, seeing him save our friends again. Standing in front of Din Djarin and the rest of the Mandalorian crew, he removes his hood, and he is Luke Skywalker 30 years earlier than when we last saw him, a fully-fledged Jedi Knight. Sure, we can talk about how this was made possible, but honestly, that's not important. And it's nowhere near perfect, but it's magical. And in the moment... That's all that really matters. Star Wars has never been about lightsabers and Darth Vader and sleek ships. It's always been about two things, hope and family. Those are the two tenets George Lucas stressed in his trilogies, and they're the reasons we still gravitate toward these stories decades later. And our Jedi Knight, aided by our old pal R2-D2, offers to take Rogu and to train him in the ways of the Force. The scene is a beautiful culmination of the relationship between Din and the child, because he really is a father to him. And now, in Grogu's best interest, Din had to let him go. The scene is just as emotionally stirring as the reunion with Luke. And again, it all comes back to the visceral power of family in storytelling. The Mandalorian has really reignited an excitement within the Star Wars community, and with moments like this, it's easy to see why. Watching each episode week to week brought back water-cooler conversations on Facebook, and at times it felt like the entire world was discussing the latest story as it unfolded. 
It was interesting to see what was happening from a collector's perspective, too. If a previously established character made an appearance in the show, the value of their original or modern figures would rise overnight. And for some characters like Grand Admiral Thrawn, the mere mention of his name in the series caused his first comic appearance to double in price within hours of the episode's release. The year did not end with The Mandalorian, though. During Disney's Investor Day, the media company revealed a hearty slate of Star Wars series and films to premiere over the next few years. Longtime Lucasfilm head Kathy Kennedy introduced the releases, teasing us with scant but exciting information, and the announcements were accompanied by a title card and, when available, a short behind-the-scenes video. Some of the series announced were a Mandalorian spin-off titled Rangers of the New Republic an Ahsoka live-action show, a Rogue One prequel about Cassian Andor, the long-awaited Obi-Wan Kenobi miniseries, the Clone Wars spin-off The Bad Batch, a Lando Calrissian show, and finally Acolyte, a mystery thriller taking place at the end of the High Republic era. Kennedy also announced the next feature-length film, Rogue Squadron, by director Patty Jenkins. The presentation offered an array of new stories and continuations of older ones as well. And Star Wars fans have a lot to anticipate over the next few years. Hey guys, this is Matthew Demick. Hope 2021 is off to a great start for you. You know, 2020 was a challenging year and I decided to use some extra time to add some pieces to my collection that uh, had been on my bucket list for a while. Um, my favorite pickup of the year was the infamous Ceramic Sigma C-3PO tape dispenser which was a piece I never thought I'd be able to get my hands on. And it came in its original package, which was uh, certainly a bonus. Um, and that was one that, uh, like I said, when that came my way, I jumped at the opportunity to add that one to my collection. I've wanted to have that for a while. Um, my favorite collecting moment this year was putting together the original vintage Topps uh, trading card set. Uh, there's five set series from 1977, three series from 1980, and two series from 1983. Uh, what I realized after a while was that putting the cards together wasn't the difficult part. It was all the stickers. Uh, stickers uh, did not survive well over the years. Uh, still plenty to go around out there. Um, but it was a lot of fun to put the collection together, and it was even more fun to share it with my son, uh, who uh, got to experience uh, the whole thing with me. So that was wonderful. That was my favorite collecting moment of the year, and uh, hope everyone stays happy and healthy until we're able to all meet in person again. And uh, may the Force be with you in 2021. So that is 2020 through the eyes of a collector. While the holidays always tend to be a blur of preparation and family events, this year afforded me the ability to enjoy more of the smaller moments leading up to Christmas and then heading into the new year. One of the best lessons I learned this year was to really appreciate this life because it could change at any moment. The biggest gift I've received from this hobby is the chance to connect with so many people and to build deep and long-lasting friendships 
and I can proudly declare that this quarantine couldn't keep those friendships from growing. Sure, we couldn't be together in the same room, but we're a resilient and creative bunch. We've found ways to keep each other's spirits up during the year, and to use technology like Zoom and Facebook to hang out and to celebrate Star Wars and life in general. When I look back on the year, the moments that immediately rush to my mind are positive ones. The weekly Saturday afternoon chats with the Georgia group, and the nighttime hangouts with my brothers and sisters of the Empire State Club. Spending a summer outside in the glorious heat, and staying out each night for as long as I could. Spending so many wonderful moments with my family, whom I love more than anything in this world. Planning some of these podcast episodes I'd mentioned, which, if I could let you in on a little secret was just additional ways to connect with friends. And that's really the purpose behind what we do. It's why Glenn, Ryan, Justin, and the rest of the Georgia crew hosted the virtual social for a weekend in August. It's why we all piled into the Deal or No Deal group and hung out there for a summer. It's why Amy Schoberg made Star Wars-themed postcards and sent them to collectors during the year or why Tom Quinn and his wife Corey made Star Wars masks and sent them as gifts to friends. It's why Chris Vargas kindly hosted the Empire State Chats, and why Mark Rusciano and Mike Cooper put on what I can only describe as the Muppet Show of Collecting with their joyful Facebook show peg warmers. I could honestly sit here and list all of the kind and wonderful and really amazing things people in our collecting community have done and have done for others over the past year. In one of my first podcast episodes, I liken the feeling of finding this community to someone walking through a field at night with a single flashlight and seeing multiple lights shining back in one beautiful moment. And through the pandemic, that analogy has taken on a whole new meaning. The flashlights we once used to find one another now help to light the paths of those around us, to keep us all together as things became darker. And so long as we stayed together, the world was so much brighter. Our love for Star Wars gives us an initial reason to come together as a community. The decision of where we go from there is entirely on us. My thanks to Clifton Boggs, Matthew Demick, F.J. DeRobertis, Justin Haney, Jim Jones, Adam Marks, Narayan Nike, Fonz Napolitano, Will Russ, and Glenn Williams for sharing their memories of the past year with us. And a special thanks to Trent Bailey for recounting his experience of the Cincinnati Toy Show Weekend. And with that, I'm raising the rest of this glass of green tea and chestnut honey to the hope that the new year brings. I sometimes try to imagine what our first meetup of the year would look like. And while it isn't quite a reality yet, I know it's not far, far away. And honestly, it's a pretty overwhelming thought. I can't imagine all of us being in the same room again. And yet, it's actually pretty easy, because we've come together so many times in the past. It will be loud, as it always is. And we will be laughing together, which we always do. And there will be Star Wars toys, collectibles, and prototypes on tables and on the floor, as there always are when we get together. 
and we will be there with flashlights in hand, ready for the next adventure. Here's to hope, and here's to the new year, wherever it takes us. Thank you for being a part of A Look Back on 2020. And thank you for being a part of Star Wars, Prototypes and Production.